Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good evening. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC's One Site. For those of you who don't know me, welcome to the folks who are here and to the folks who will see this discussion on Zoom or here on our podcast. Holy Pope. I first want to introduce my partner in crime uh, and my co-director of the Center, Mike Murphy. We are on opposite sides of the spectrum for years, but we've also been friends for years. And that represents something of what Center for the Political Future is all about. We're going to have a kind of informal conversation and talk with our spring 2023 CPS fellows for the next 40 to 45 minutes. And then we'll open this up to those questions if, if folks here have it. First, let me acknowledge two of our spring fellows who shouldn't be here today. Michael Bishop was a Republican member of Congress and was the founder and president of American General Counsel PLC. His study group will focus on the 21st century transformation of politics and we still bridge divides. Martha Scudieri is a retired state senator and currently serves as vice president for state government relations, special counsel at USC. Her study group is entitled, A Latina in Politics, Power Moves, and I don't mean salsa dancing. <laughs> you will see more of Mike and Martha as the semester moves along. Now let me introduce the fellows who are here with us today. Hank Plant is an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning American television reporter for CBS, a news anchor, and a newspaper columnist. His study group will explore the politics of journalism and the journalism of politics. Bill Carrick is a strategic and media consultant for ballot initiatives and candidates at California and nationally, including Ted Kennedy, Dianne Feinstein, and Bill Clinton. His study group is about something he knows a lot, all about campaigns. Stephanie Young is the executive director, is that right, of When We Vote founded by Michelle Obama, and her study group is on the intersection of pop culture and politics, and we'll delve into how popular culture influences our elections and shapes our democracy. We are thrilled that Stephanie is joining us as our Barbara Boxer fellow this fall. We, her study group, and by the way, Hank Plant is our David Bonnet fellow this fall. Ivor Reiner was the district attorney of Los Angeles. Before that, he was the city attorney, and he was the city of Los Angeles and the controller of the city of Los Angeles. His study group is entitled, Who Will Guard the Guards? And it's on prosecutorial and police misconduct. Everybody will talk a little bit more about their study groups as we go along. Finally, John McConnell, someone I admire very much, and disagree with almost all the time. He was a senior speechwriter in the White House for George W. Bush, and for Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, wrote some of the incredibly memorable words that came after 9-11. And his study group is going to be on, on a right speeches for a politician. And I think it takes a lot of courage to decide that we can actually teach that. So I think we'll start off, I'm going to start off with the, the first question and then yield the mic. And this is for everybody. You all come at this from different perspectives. But here at the center, we look to bridge partisan divides to at least, we might disagree with each other, but at least to respect each other and respect the truth. With the recent contentious vote for the Speaker of the House, what do you think Kevin McCarthy can do to work with Democrats? Does he want to work with Democrats? And how can he even handle members of his own party to help enact must-pass legislation like raising the debt limit, or is that in any cult for bipartisan progress kind of a hopeless cause? I think I don't know if he can work with his own party, to be honest with you. He says it seems like Nancy Pelosi's uh, biggest attribute was her ability to bring the left in to every tent. It's just like Jerry Brown when he was governor this last time. Jerry Brown's uh, biggest accomplishment was hurting these Democrats in together because it's like Hurting cats. I don't know if McCarthy can do it or not. I mean, he early won this. Bill? I thought that the uh, spectacle we witnessed of his election, all, all 15 ballots, was unique in uh, American political history, sure. But it was also like, it was, we had a, they had a hostage, and they were going to keep going until he surrendered. 
And it, and it just was unbelievable because the Speaker of the House of Representatives now has basically gotten elected by these, what was it, 14 or 15 of them? Uh, there were 20 holdouts of this. 20 holdouts, basically, hardcore 14s, uh, deep hardcore 6. And what made it so revealing was the last two ballots, everybody started to explicitly kneel for committees and, and everything else. And uh, I, I've never seen a spectacle like that in public. There's obviously been things that go on it's behind the scenes. We don't know exactly how they work. But this was just stick them up in public. So I think this thing he gave up, which allows any member of the House to bring a motion for the floor to vacate the chair, in other words, get rid of the speaker, that is eventually going to get him. And it's going to happen sooner or later. And it's probably going to happen pretty fast. Yeah. Um, well, I worked on Capitol Hill for many years. One, uh, working for Stating Warrior as a Democratic whip, where you actually had to count the votes. Uh, and then also working as a communications director for the Congressional Black Caucus. And to your point, Hank, about uh, how close he was able to bring everybody in. Obviously, that was on full display consistently. So whether or not he wants to work with Democrats, if he's interested in getting anything done, he could choose to work with Democrats because he can't control the crazies and he can't control all of the dysfunction that we saw on full display, which was quite frankly not embarrassing just for Republicans. It was embarrassing for the United States. He obviously is weak in his position. And all I can think about is when Cantor lost his seat and it was happened all of a sudden, obviously he wasn't taking care of home in Virginia, but it can happen. And I think that he's weakened himself and he's weakened the Congress and he's put us in a bad position to get anything done for the American people. Anybody going to give me a guess as to whether or not we're going to actually pass something <laughs> that will raise the debt limit? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Ira. And then, well, I'm carried by what Mike on my left. Well, that's a switch. <laughs> I can say. Uh, as to your question, Bob, this sounds like a punch fine and a joke. But what we saw over those several days, 15 ballots, that gave politics a bad name. That sounds like a punchline and a joke, but truly it did. As to your real question here is to uh, whether uh, McCarthy can bridge a gap of this polarization. Well, it's a pointless point to even discuss. Of course he can. And it has nothing to do with McCarthy. It has to do with that crowd that held out for so long and finally allowed him to become speaker uh, so long as uh, he gave them everything they wanted, which really, of course, they wanted uh, committee assignments. But what they really wanted and what they're really going to get is the ability to control everything that's going on on Republican side on the House. If that's the case, then it's pointless to talk about any sort of bridging of any sort of ameliorating in any way the polarization, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be so much worse than it ever has been, and certainly has been very, very bad. So that's what we're in, uh, what's in store. Uh, will uh, the debt ceiling issue be uh, ultimately resolved in a way that doesn't crash? Yes, I think it will be. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but I, I, I cannot see, no matter how much they play the game of chick, that they're going to allow the country to crash. Uh, they can point a gun at their head and say, do this or I'll kill myself. But at a certain point, they're not going to pull the trigger. It is interesting that none of you have mentioned that there are some more moderate Republicans, one of whom today, Congresswoman from Indiana, said she is not going to vote to throw Democrats off committees. And there may be one or two others. And at that point, then he can't throw Democrats off committees except for intelligence because it's a select committee, which he has the power of. But I can hear from Don. They'll raise the debt limit because they have. It will happen. But it's just, it's interesting to me, just from a historical point of view, we're just now leaving an era of a Speaker of the House who has real power and authority. And I heard New Cambridge on TV a few weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi is arguably the most effective Speaker of the House we've ever had. And now you have a Republican Speaker whose main focus is keeping that title. And the last Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Lyon, didn't even want to be a Speaker of the House. And so it's just strange if you look at the sweep of history. Speaker of the House used to be a very big deal. They would spend their whole careers building up to that. Tip O'Neill became Speaker, what was he, 65? He became Speaker. Realized that he'd been there. Yeah, succeeded. To, he got elected to Congress in 52, succeeding a young congressman named John F. Kennedy. Right. Now, and then he, did he 
serves his time and then he becomes speaker at 65 years, holds on to that for 10 years. It's what he aspired to, lives out his, his uh, career, the rest of his career. And then he had Paul Ryan, he didn't want the job, left the house after 20 plus years, and he won 50 years old. And Bader, and Bader was only too happy to yeah, be forced out now after three, four years, something like that. Anyway, it's just interesting to see how the office still has obvious powers and influence, but it's nothing like it used to. Like you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, this one is so good. I can't resist. Um, <laughs> you know, there are multiple failures happening simultaneously. It's coming to a head. One, you you had one wing of because Congress is not designed for a three, four, five seat march because it makes everybody an independent up. It's not like the Senate where individual members and in both parties have a lot of power. In Congress, the majority has all the power; the minority has very little. But when you get down to you know, a couple, then a couple have a lot of power. So they held up McCarthy. McCarthy gave away the institution to get the seat. People all talk about a lot that the all important rules committee, which controls the floor, is really how the leadership runs Congress, now has a bunch of single issue people who are going to vote as a block saying, metric system's a communist plot, we need a floor vote. And the Democrats are perfectly capable of, well, because I have a floor vote, put them all on record. And passing stuff through a rules committee, which will lose control of the floor. So all, all kinds of institutional problems. Then the other institutional problem is we no longer operate under regular order, where the Committee on Fisheries decides what to do about the flounder, and it goes to appropriations, budget rule, and to the floor. Now it's all done in the middle of the night with a thousand-page bill nobody reads because it's totally dysfunctional there. Now, just to finish up on the question, they have to do the dead ceiling, so they will. But it's going to be the perils of Pauly, you know, the old movie with the lady on the railroad tracks and the thing coming. We could have a UK-like situation here. Liz Truss, shortest prime minister in British history, came out with kind of a half-baked plan that wasn't presented well, and the market's panicked. And that blew up the Tories, and now they're running 20 points behind Labour, and they may lose power. The only footnote in this is Joe Biden has no interest in negotiating deals. So it's not like a bunch of Democrats waiting to negotiate. Two reasons, one legitimate, one in my view, Todd. The legitimate reason is they don't want to reward the debt ceiling as a negotiation. If Congress worked like it used to, there would be other places to do that. The other thing is Biden's not that interested in cutting spending. It's not the equation of their party. Now, that used to be an easier attack to make as a Republican, but Trump was almost as bad as Biden. Republicans have become big spenders. But what gets the caucus going, and I think appropriately, you know, the Freedom Caucus is using inappropriate tactics to prosecute a very legitimate argument. We're up to 133% of GDP in debt. We have a huge debt crisis in our country. And our political class, particularly in the House, which is totally divided, is showing no interest in doing anything. So there's a lot of sympathy on the Republican side get into some kind of spending cuts, there's zero sympathy on the Democrat side. So there's actually a legit argument underneath all this. The problem is that debt ceiling is not the way to do it. That's like fly swatting nitroglycerin. Yes, the fly is a problem. The nitroglycerin is very dangerous. But I think in the end they will. But this will be the craziest last minute. And the Democrats, as they already have, and he's had yelling with socialists with it. Well, we better start getting ready to eat a lot of canned food here. We're getting the bunker ready at Treasury. So both sides are going to play the stupid brakesmanship. And this time it could do economic jam. But in the end, I think they will. I think they will too. And I also am not at all clear, and we've never faced this question. The debt ceiling has only existed since World War War. We never had rises in the debt ceiling. The Constitution says, you have to give full faith and credit to the United States, to its financial obligations. So it's not even clear to me that a limit on the debt is constitutional, although I don't know what the courts would do if we got into a crisis. And that time, you'd have a stock market crash on the scale of 1929. It's happened once for about a day in the 70s, but that was a technical. Uh, and the markets were prepared for it. This is a functional breakdown. Bill, politically partisan, political note on this. I agree on the Republicans are going to use the head limit. This truth. Carth is totally driven by fundraisers. All of corporate America will land on its if it plays chicken lips for more than 30 minutes. I mean, everybody you see on CNBC on any given day and the rest and all the other people who ever from CNBC will be raising hell about this. And, and that it will be Morgan Stanley, everybody will have a bit about it. And a lot of these people are Republicans and Republican voters. And all the and they are the people that are putting money into all these super PACs with unrestricted money. So they will shut down the whole show. The rest of it will be a joke after that. Just the Republican Party will be functioning it. 
Well, they're, they're do a deal where Democrat votes will make it happen. And then if the caucus, the wings of nuts in the caucus are mad enough, they will vote to vacate Kevin. And he might have to, as part of that deal, have five Democrat votes ready to back him up the speaker. I mean, they're going to have to make a complicated insurance policy to get that final 12, 18 Democrat gun. But anyway, it's banana republic stuff. It's not the national interest. Yeah, I thought we might turn to a series of individual questions. Sure. To each of you, if anybody's welcome comments on whatever any of you said. Mike, you want to go first? The, uh, the staff is appropriately scripted. He like a hostage video. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and here's the question for Stephanie. Will you get the first fastball? Anybody can join it. Okay. Here at the center, we are committed to bridging the partisan divide and encouraging respectful dialogue. It seems as though what I like this, Mike Murphy has described as a, quote, I'm right, your evil mentality dominates today's political culture. As the executive director of a nonpartisan organization, what are your thoughts on getting along with people with whom you fundamentally, and I would say properly, politics is not about everybody agreeing on applesauce. It's how do you do your disagreeing. So what are your thoughts on getting along with people with whom you fundamentally disagree? How can we keep conversations with them productive and respectful? Yeah. Well, one thing I did uh, when I worked on Capitol Hill was I did a bunch of congressional delegation tours overseas. And we always usually tap staffers that work for leadership uh, so that they are able to create more relationships uh, with different nations that we are building relationships with. And we always, every time I went on a trip, was with a lot of Republicans. And I remember this being some of the best times. I had the best times and made some really great friends. Uh, and that's because we were just being humans together. You know, we're breaking bread together. We're launching something together. We're earning something together and we're learning something broader than, you know, what are your political views or your ideas? And I think that obviously that's something that we have missed and we're missing now is being able to have that barrier broken down. I do think that we're living in a really weird time because sometimes folks' attachment to their party or to their ideology is harmful to someone's existence and to be who they want to be in this world and also for democracy. So I think that that um, as long as you are, are building conversation and relationship based on fact and truth, there's a far way that that you can go. And I think one thing that when we all vote that we really strike you, since we are a nonpartisan organization, is voting, civic engagement, democracy. It's bigger than one party. It's bigger than one person. It's bigger than one group. And if we continue to create I think strings of connection based on, oh, I love Barack Obama, or I love Donald Trump, or I love this person. You're not loving the fact that we are living in a democracy and it takes all of us to be a part of it consistently, right? So we have to start thinking about government and democracy, not based on a figure that we like or that we are inspired by, but based on the idea that we are all supposed to be a part of it. So we consistently work hard uh, to try to separate an individual, a feeling away from this work, but get people drawn to the ideals of it. So it's not a clean answer. It's hard. Uh, I think the last thing I'll say is like listening. We don't listen to people anymore. And there's a way to disagree and not to be, I won't say disagreeable, but to politely disagree. And democracy is a is a test. Take people from all of these different perspectives, experiences, walks of life and say, let's all work together. We're not supposed to agree, right? And that's fine. So how do we have better discourse with each other's recognizing and understanding that we might ever meet on this wavelength? However, there are different points of connection. So how do we build from there? And I think especially for a lot of the folks who are supposed to be representing us, they got to put us first and think about our well-being instead of their political careers or the things that they want specifically for them or just their communities. It's a larger picture. And I think this kind of even stems from you know, what we've just talked about and all the dysfunction that we're seeing. The American people aren't part of that. No one's thinking about what's next and what's coming next for us. They're thinking about themselves. And so I think it's critically important that we take a step back, be open uh, to listen to each other uh, and to build connection and to understand that disagreement is a part of democracy. Anybody want to comment on this? Yeah. I agree with everything you say, but maybe look at it from a different angle and mm-hmm. perspective. First of all, there was never a once upon a time politics, but there was a qualitative difference between the fairly recent past and today. And this is maybe not a political problem as much as it is a sociological problem. And politics is following sociology, or the politicians are following the people rather than the reverse. 
Trump uh, was a man for his time, uh, that there was this smoldering discontent. And Trump had the uh, feral instincts and abilities that others in public life didn't quite have. And he was able to seize upon that. And what we have now are differences that are, frankly, existential. They're not really like the differences we had in the recent past between limited government and expansive government. Uh, We're talking about democracy and without any hyperbole or exaggeration with Liz Cheney, speechwriter for her father. She stands, not to overstate it, maybe I am, but sort of as a uh, bulwark is is not a strong enough uh, word of, well, starting to repeat myself, this is an existential moment and we need other people with the voice of Liz Cheney more than there needs to be, I think at this point, given these circumstances, a discussion of, of how we all get along. You know, maybe Liz Cheney is the Joan of Arc <laughs> uh, that is going to save us from the fall of democracy, which is, uh, frankly, the reason Trump is not president today, having lost the election, is because his plan was mostly ad hoc, and he didn't have the people in place to carry out what they were trying to do. They had some time to plan. Maybe it will fizzle out again. And then again, maybe what he started has metastasized nationally, and in the absence of Trump, there are people that were infected by Trump and with the metastasized throughout the country, maybe the threat is going to be far greater in 24 than it was that we so narrowly escaped in 20. I'd have to see the obvious, which is that uh, a lot of the division is being fueled by uh, media and how polarizing the media is. When a Fox News driving a conversation on the right and when you have MSNBC driving on the left, CNN is trying to find a different path under Chris Lick, the guy who's running it, uh, okay, and, and I don't see where that's a Denver necessity. That's a programming problem. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, like big lies say, in, in when you in Fox News and MSNBC, and uh, I don't pretend to know where it's going, but I know they're driving it, and I think you do too. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to be mamby pamby, right? Like it's hard to build connection in this moment when when so many things are at stake, and especially if we're looking at the health and the longevity of our democracy. And I don't know how, I mean, I'm a genie, I don't know how you build relationship with someone who doesn't believe in facts, doesn't believe in just the basic foundation of democracy, where we're seeing a lot of people are starting to say, well, this country is actually Republican, we're not Republic, we're not a true democracy, which, you know, obviously there there's some challenges there. But like, if we have two different fundamental foundations as to where we're coming from. And we also have the media that consistently fuels, not just having us at each other's throats or having us up in arms consistently is big money. And it is the driving force for our media right now, our news. So instead of us getting actual real facts information, they are teetering on this, the hope that there's a scandal really with documents and with this and, and equalizing things that don't need to equalize. So it's put us in obviously an extreme polarizing state. And it's made it harder for us to communicate with each other. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop. And my hope is that we have more Liz Cheney's and we have more people standing up, not for party, not for self, but for democracy, so that we're all that we're actually able to build bridges for Don, I don't want to get you in on this, but I want to I want to ask you a specific question too. Comment on this, but then put us in the Oval Office and give us a sense of what it's like to collaborate on speeches with the President of the United States. Well, I have limited experience to one president, so I can... But listen, hey, brother. <laughs> well, in the in the case of the president, I worked for, and I, of course, she worked on major addresses, President Clinton. I think those two presidents were similar in certain ways. They really cared about their speeches. By the time President Bush got up to give a speech, it really represented what he wanted to say uh, because he had spent so much time on it. People would ask me, how much ad-libbing? Did he do? Clinton did a lot. George W. didn't do any because he spent so much time on that speech. It's what he wanted to say. He was a very serious editor, very uh, intense, uh, confident editor of speeches. He would give us, and uh, for a major speech, State of the Union, addressed to the, na- address to the nation, he would give us, of course, plenty of upfront guidance on what he wanted to say and how he wanted to organize. But then he would 
sort of let us go off and do it, staff it around to the to the vice president who would read it, not really comment on speeches, uh, chief staff and the department heads. And then uh, a practice session uh, in that family theater and the East Wing uh, that I guess the Eisenhowers put in. And uh, so the teleprompter set up there. If you worked on the speech, you're in the room. And then he would stand up and, and read it. And I think it was just exactly the same way President Clinton. A lot Clinton of- would edit well in the theater. And Bush did the same on the teleprompter. For, for hours, right? Yeah. And President Bush would do that too. But I remember one time the president's dog had had enough of this. <laughs> Barney. And he would, so uh, he started biting the president's family. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my colleague Matthew Scully said, Look, that's the only creature on earth that could attack the president. <laughs> Mike, you want to. Yeah, just how many drafts would an average significant push speech go through? From conception, which is always 40 people, 40 agencies trying to right. weigh in to the actual deliberate draft. The State of the Union would be draft 32, mm-hmm. but the difference between 31 and 32 is going to be a small fact checking question. And the difference between 20 and 32 is they're not going to be huge, but the difference between six and eight, it will be pretty dramatic. He would come in a day or two before the actual event. I remember one time in particular, he came in and the staff secretary was there, chief of staff, Dr. Rice, three speech writers, and We've been working on it. This was the third or fourth practice. And President Bush came in and said, morning, everybody. This is not an editing session. With a look on meeting, no more changes. And he wanted to bond with it at that point. Uh, he would be very patient uh, if people had suggestions, but he had limits to his patience. And he would also, when people would lobby the speechwriters, you know, really put this in. It's really important. So important. It's just a line. It's just nine words, right? And um, President Bush would fight, he would spot these and he could call them crammins. And he'd, he'd get to that point in the speech and he'd read it and he'd go, Oh, you got to cram in. And he said, He said, I want to guess. I want to guess P. David is taking insistent on this. And he could always guess. And then I'd say 99% of the time, he'd say, Take it out. And then that'd be it. But we had accommodated <laughs> the requester. Very, very quick now, going to a new question. Of all the politicians you work for, who was the most focused on excellent speeches, other than George Depp? Probably took him seriously when he was Depp the Planner. Well, Dan Quayle, my first boss, uh, remember, is the only person I've ever written for who would write an entire speech on his own. He's the only one who's ever done that. And he had a uh, newspaper background. And so he was used to writing and writing fast. And when he left office, he actually had a weekly newspaper column for a couple of years, which he would, I mean, he would do himself and pound out. So he was very, he would come in on a Monday back in the era of floppy disks. And he would say, <laughs> he'd call me in and said, John, I wrote a speech this week and give it to me. And it would be a whole speech, beginning, middle, end, good lines, everything else. Then I'd be reading, if you were around those days, I'd be reading and it's okay, and this is nice. And then it would say, John, Find me thus and so. It would be our paper. John, put in the part from the Chicago speech that I like. Or he would just write those things too. He was very focused. And he, Quayle would look at a speech and say, oh, this is good, but it needs to be cut by a third. It's <laughs> <laughs> always a good idea. So anyway, we're going to go to, from politics to journey. What do you regard as the most important story ever covered in your law career? So talk about that. So I was, I think I was the first openly gay TV reporter in America. And there uh, I was in San Francisco and AIDS came along. And uh, so it was more than a story to me. The national media wasn't covering it, really. President Reagan wasn't talking. Bill and I were just talking about this before the session started. I stood in front of Reagan the night that he said the word AIDS for the first time. 1987, Elizabeth Taylor dragged into her speech. And uh, I made a note that night in my reporter's notebook that at that moment, when he said the word AIDS for the first time, 23,000 Americans had already died. And so being open and uh, working in a uh, market like San Francisco, uh, which was ground zero for the AIDS epidemic in this country, it was uh, a gift, as weird as that is to say, because it was a chance for me to use my skills to go on the air every night and tell people, how do you not get this disease? Or uh, what drugs are working and what's not working. It was more than a story to me. My friends were dying. And so I really look back on that as a kid. So I want to give everybody, anybody, our fellows, this session is really about. So Ira, I want to turn to you and 
ask you about LA specifically. We have a new mayor, and do you think Bass, Karen Bass, can actually make real progress against homelessness? Do you see any sign of it happening? And she also has to face the problem of what to do about police chief and what to do about the police. I mean, she's got a lot in her plate. And where's it going to go? Every mayor has a lot of a plate. Let's see. You asked two questions, I think. Yeah, homelessness <laughs> and police. I thought it seemed to be the two dominant issues. Yeah. Can she really make real headway with the homeless problem? Probably not. I mean, realistically, probably not. That is not a criticism of Mayor Karen Bass, whom I supported and whom I like a great deal. It's just a recognition of reality. But I don't know that that problem can be dealt with effectively. Maybe it's an intractable problem, and maybe I'm absolutely wrong, and she will be the first person to have dealt with a problem that wasn't worse after that that person dealt with. Over time, uh, we look back, the homeless problem uh, is much worse today than it was a year ago, and a year ago, that same thing could have been said in the year before that. So I'll, I'll repeat one thing I said way back in 1980s. I was either city attorney or district attorney at the time, and it was a smart-ass remark that I made, but I was trying to make a, a point. I said there were two reasons why the homeless problem couldn't be solved. And the first reason was that conservatives thought that every homeless person was a bum, and liberals thought that every bum was a homeless person. Like I said, that was a smart-ass <laughs> remark. Good morning. <laughs> Yet, I think it touched on a real point, that everybody is coming to this with the, the one true religion perspective on the problem and whatever their true religion happens to be. And they talk past each other, and they all have their ideological views as to what to do about them. And that has led to the problem getting worse and worser. And I wish uh, a Karen Bass, well, frankly, I wish L.A., and I wish myself uh, that she is successful, uh, but uh, say it's a long shot, uh, doesn't begin to describe. Bill, I, I want to ask you about how different campaigns of police. Oh, oh the police. No, that's not an entrapment problem. It's a big one. But um, he dropped by on Mondays at noon, from noon to two. Where to start on here? Because I keep this real short, like for 30 seconds. Well, I talk about police and prosecutorial misconduct, focusing more on police misconduct. The George Floyd problem, if you want to put it that way, of the gross abuse of police authority and use of force, sometimes uh, fatal, very often not fatal, but much more numerous. That's one problem. I don't think that is the greatest problem we're facing writ large. I think the greatest problem in terms of police enforcement has to do with the underlying, call it a, a mindset of policing that is generally accepted as appropriate. So not talking about the obvious violation of law, a gross abuse of uh, force and authority, but the type of law enforcement that is generally accepted. We have on every black and white car, protect and serve. And then you have the Police Protective League, which is the uh, union for the rank and file, of LAPD that has the phrase, the thin blue line. Well, put those two together. That thin blue line posits that there are two societies. On one society is violence and chaos. On the other side of that divide, that thin blue line, is civil society. And the purpose of law enforcement is to contain and suppress violent crime, on that side of the divide in order to protect and serve on the other side of the divide. And that is the basic, if you want to call it a philosophy, a practice of law enforcement. And it's a law enforcement that the public generally, writ large, wants to protect the civil society side of that divide by preventing violent crime from seeping from the chaos, violent side into civil society. And it's impossible. And of course, it does seep through. And when it does, there is the immediate cry of a rise in crime. When there is no rise in crime, it's just some of it has seeped across 
a year ago or so ago, we had an increase in, or not an increase, a sudden change of uh, smash-and-grab crimes where groups would come storming in to a department store, break everything in sight, grab merchandise, then go out and sell it on eBay or someplace. Suddenly, people shopping at Nordstrom's were faced with crime that had seeped over from the other side of that divide. And now there was the cry. It shouldn't take an act of courage to shop at Nordstrom's. Yeah. So now we have the cry of, of that there was an increase in crime when there wasn't. So in terms of dealing with question that underlying question about policing, it's not, I mean, it's not the greatest problem of the officers that abuse their authority, but it's law enforcement that abuse suppression and containment on the other side of that thin blue line as appropriate law enforcement. What happens, it builds hostility. Hostility grows till there is an explosion because there's an incident, and there's always an incident. Critical mass forms from all that hostility that builds and builds. With enough critical mass, there's a spark of an incident, and then there's an explosion, and then there are protests, and then there is damage, and there are fires, and then there are arrests, and it calms down, and then it starts to build again. And it's, uh, you know, wash and repeat. It'll be interesting to see whether gas can break that cycle. My father was a long-distance truck driver, and another truck crashed into him. We had just started this new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. We're going to go to tawdry politics now, also, since I can't answer this one. I'm going to throw it to you. You know, any way you can want to go at it. But what I've got here is how does campaign strategy change for local, state, and federal campaigns? Can you tell us a little bit about how your study group will have to teach students about the world of political campaign? But I think, you know, all of the things we've talked about are related to the way we elect people nowadays, which is uh, no longer... The parties go find the best candidate they think and run that candidate and they get elected or don't get elected. And the other party does the same thing. Now everybody's an independent actor for the most part. And that's all. Some of this is because of the way we communicate with society now. There's no, you know, when showing my age, we had three television networks. Everybody watched those same three television networks. It's all pointed TV. Watch. Ed Sullivan at 9 o'clock on Sunday night. All of that stuff is long gone. And what we have is people watching all kinds of programming all over the map, streamers, connected TV, cable, regular broadcasts. You go on and on and on. And the old media structure, there was some capacity for unifying a dynamic. Walter Cronkite, everybody trusted. Holly Brakely trusted. Holly Brakely. We don't have any of that. And allied people in here don't even... We don't. <laughs> but what we do now have is Fox has a political mission. MSNBC has political mission. CNN has programming problems. With people, are, they choose the media that reinforces their own beliefs. They don't explore issues from both sides. There's nothing like that. It's all like, just find out where you can get reinforcement. And it's all more, it's all made more complicated because there's a, even though there's a lot of money out there in politics, it's harder to communicate because there's so much fragmentation in the way we communicate anything in the societies. And it's so people don't really get a unifying message. You know, the idea of all of us up on this front here have been through this business of politics, finding the message. You know, once that, what's your story? And having that perfect stump speech that, you know, Raul Ray gave the same stump speech for from the time he left GE until the same speech. It was always the same speech. And I heard it personally 10 times in person. But there's none of that anymore. It's all people are, and what matters is now we had a president decided this new system was great 
because it was going to screw the establishment and maybe an insurgent could come up. And he played it very well. And the Twitter and all those things he did and the campaigns worked very well for him. But then they're one paragraph comments. They're not a philosophy. They're not what you're going to do as a president that day or you're going to do with a presidential candidate forecasting what you can do. There's none of that. It's just like hit the right pressure point, get people to A, give you money, B, go out, vote for you. And it's, uh, we have a very fragmented political system. And that where does that lead us into all this turmoil we had? We started on the January 6th. Well, we still have a hell of a lot of turmoil. We just finished electing a guy to the United States House of Representatives who has more problems than most kids, the rest of the members of Congress call combining. I mean, it was unbelievable. And somehow, between the news media and the men, the the national media, the local one newspaper in Long Island, they dealt with this one small old newspaper. And most of the 99% of the media didn't deal with this. Neither political party deals with it. You know, we talk about opposition researchers that go out, dig up all the dirt on the end. Where the hell were they there? They took that campaign off? What the hell? Where would you tell more than And it was a big, and, and incredibly not, it was in the interest of both parts to take it. Well, they have it. It's just some of the RSO is going to lose with cares. And now, you know, frap them up because you're desperate for the boat. Even though it goes ridiculous. Yeah. It, I mean, I personally think if why disqualified you for Congress, we'd never have a quorum. But with the fragmentation is what is the biggest thing that has uh, changed how we conduct our campaigns and and the way we conduct our campaigns creates more fragmentation. Yeah, I'll just chime in quickly. I'm on the board of another one of these things at Chicago, University of Chicago. And we find that the most fascinating thing about the sociology of politics now is the delta between how people act on social media and how they act in their personal lives. We take a bunch of kids from urban Chicago, who I will bet you dollars to donuts are base Democratic. And we take a bunch of kids from a Trump County in rural Illinois, and we lock them up for three days together. And by the end of it, they're all best friends, they're writing songs, do it for Mary. I mean, it's amazing because the social instinct of humans to kind of band together is very powerful. But when you're a little detached, you can tweet your rage and everything. And the algorithms, of course, smash you together. Other people who think that way and it becomes an escalating feedback is very toxic and we are paying a price for it. So I'm, we wanted to get people a sense of our fellows, I think, know that pretty well. And I want to leave a little bit of time for questions. So in the last three election cycles, um, youth voter turnout has been much higher. Do you see that trend continuing into 2024? And what do uh, campaigns on both sides, um, Republican and Democrat, uh, need to do to ensure that that youth voter turnout will remain high? I'll take this. I'll say that, I mean, youth voter turnout was high in 2020 as well. So there's an uptick that's happening. It actually was higher in 2018 for a midterm that we don't talk much about. But it went up a tick in 2018. Then in 2020, we had 50% of young voting. And then obviously in 22, is about 27%, even though that's the highest youth voter turnout on par I think maybe it was about 18 years ago, there was another kind of splurge in that moment. But, you know, through research, we do know that young people are understanding their agency. They're understanding that their power, they're understanding that we band together. You actually can be a political movement. And unlike any other generation in recent history, through the pandemic, experiencing and really seeing how government had a role, played a role in our life from police violence to Climate change, these are all the issues that are pushing now. Now you have also the reproductive justice issue that is very important for young people. So they are recognizing it's seeing their power. I do believe that we'll continue to see an uptick and trend going in the right direction. I do think that campaigns and typically presidential campaigns, good job with hiring a lot of young people, right? Uh, but it's it's making sure that they understand all the fragments um, in the way in which this generation communicates. Only 8% consume traditional news. So if the majority of them are on TikTok or on social, they're on YouTube, it's not about how do we get our messages on there? How do we create the best messengers like you to be a part of what we're doing to help be out in the community virtually or literally in person? Um, because we know at the end of the day, that candidate, that celebrity, that athlete is not the best influencer that young person is the best influencer for the people that are around them, including the adults, the parents, their lives, the grandparents, uh, and their own peers. 
So I think that there's a lot of folks who are aware of this. And you also have really big movements, not just counting when we all vote, but Mexican and others who are dedicated to helping young people find their political power. And now that we have a Gen Zer in Congress, I can imagine that continuing to happen considering you know, slowly but surely, representation is getting more diverse, it's getting younger. And um, I think you can now see and recognize your impact when you do vote and participate. Uh, and I do think campaigns are, are recognizing that. To make a crass point, if I can, yeah, what the GOP can do in 2024 to ensure very high youth voter turnout is to nominate Donald Trump again. That would produce very high young turnout. It is gonna, it's kind of ironic because Joe Biden is 118. He will rely heavily on young boats to survive or not. <laughs> but it's like when they asked Ron Reagan, who was his oldest American president, had huge support among young people. Old generation of young people became Republicans. I think what's happening now is the old generation of young people are going to become Democrats. Yeah, and they're not also identifying with parties. Right, they're they're identifying with the issues. Yeah. So if you're if you're about my issue, I'm with you. I think the other thing that we're we finding in this new uh, surge of youth voters, young voters, is they're finding ways to communicate with each other outside the boundaries of traditional communications. So there's a lot of young voters who talk to each other about stuff. I was doing sheriff's loaners election. I was stunned at how many very young people. And inside, it. they cared very deep about who was going to be the sheriff of L.A. County. And they started talking to each other. Their first instinct is to talk to each other. And it was uh, it was pretty profound. And uh, we ended up slaughtering them by a big march. They ain't coming by a big margin, but extremely well. In the mayor's race, Caruso won voters over 46. The young vote was so overwhelmingly fast, that was the keys for victory. Age, also Democrat. And then we say they're not really party identifiers or Democrats, but they vote Democrat. Oh, yeah, they do. I mean, that's maybe a distinction with a difference. I don't know. But they do vote. The young the young voters are not finding anything they like about the Republican Party. And I think some of this is also sort of economic. There's a whole, whole bunch of young voters with economic anxiety about the future and what, what, what it's going to be to them. And they have an interest in national politics, different than it's was even 10 years ago. Let's take two more quick questions. Yeah, go ahead. Building off Eleanor's question, at the top of the session, you all to various degrees lamented McCarthy for his concessions to the Freedom Caucus and you know, I end up out of the Freedom Caucus, but it's better to have a speaker which is more sensitive to other issues or other concerns within the party. I'm thinking not so much about the Freedom Caucus, but I'm thinking back to Nancy Pelosi, which you will praise as a very good speaker because she was able to toe the party line, even though there's significant progressive voices in the Democratic Party now. Uh, I think a lot of young people, and they tend to be more progressive, were frustrated that they could not make any progress in Congress because of Nancy Pelosi being so powerful to speak. Nancy Pelosi, very practical, pragmatic person. She is actually very progressive. And what she was interested in doing was passing legislation that could actually be put into law, not just passing legislation that would make a point, send a message. She wanted to actually change things. And I think, I never thought I'd under this sentence, I agree with Newt Gingrich that she probably is the most effective speaker, at least in memory and maybe in history. We wouldn't have Obamacare without her. And I'll just tell you a brief story. I mean, after the Ted Kennedy Senate seat was lost in Massachusetts, Democrats no longer had the 60 votes in the Senate to pass health care with this filibuster proof. And at a meeting at the White House of Realm of Annual, then the president's chief of staff was there, and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and, and the president. And the president said, well, go ahead and make your case to Rom. And he said, well, I think we ought to skin this back, and maybe we ought to just think of uncovering women and children, and then we could return to this issue in a few years. And Nancy Pelosi said, what makes you think I would vote for that? I call that the Titanic strategy. Women and children first. We're not doing it. And, and President Obama said, well, that takes care of that. She then did something that, if you understand Congress, is almost impossible. She persuaded the House of Representatives to pass the bill the Senate had already passed without an amendment. Because if it got amended, it had to go back to the Senate and there weren't the votes for it. She persuaded them to do that, and that's how Obamacare got enacted in the law. That's why people say she's so effective. And by the way, most, not all, 
But most of the people call themselves progressives that were in the Progressive Caucus, Ruben Gallego, would say that Nancy Pelosi was someone they felt very comfortable with because she got things done. Joe Biden has just done more stuff legislative in a shorter period of time than any president since Sonnen Johns. Pelosi was old school in that you know, she came up in Baltimore politics and that she'd used fear. When you walked into Pelosi's office, there were two things you saw. A bowl of famous San Francisco Giardelli chocolates and a baseball bat. I'm not a super fan. That Taiwan trip is the stupidest thing. A speaker is done a foreign policy for a generation. It's about to happen again. I know it's terrible. It's very risky, and we're going to find out. But she was a power politician who would use fear. A lot of the successful speakers had a real psychopath as a whip, too. That was the old Republican mob. Remember, Tom DeLay, and they killed the hammer. He didn't get that nickname because they thought it was cute. Kevin McCarthy never used it. He's a pleaser. And so they declawed it. And now the inmates are running the asylum in the House car. We're going to have to wrap up. Anybody have a question that somebody could answer quickly? Yes. And ask something building about that. Like you mentioned, cutting back revenue. Why is it in a discussion about raising taxes? Is there any appetite for that in terms of like the debt limit? Is there like a deal that can reach? Well, again, you've got this procedural problem of we can't use the debt limit to negotiate because that starts a precedent. If we had regular order, yeah, there's a discussion about the erase of revenue and the cuts in spending. Generally, the parties are dug in. The Democrats don't want to cut much revenue. And if they do, nobody agrees on the revenue. And the Republicans sort of want to cut revenue, but never want to touch taxes. So they're kind of in the the lockdown. But we don't even operate Congress like we used to where you had this phrase, regular order, where the committees decide the priorities and it's negotiated at multiple levels. Now they put an emergency thing together in the middle of the night that's a thousand pages long and they slam it through on a party vote. It's a very dysfunctional way to operate. And even if you have goodwill towards some negotiation, and there's a lot of stuff about this on the Problem Solvers Caucus, it's very hard to get done. And also, politics orders everything. I mean, so if the Democrats are like, you know, this debt limit thing is terrible, they're scaring the country, Hopefully, they're burning their fingers off and we'll win the six seats. Because remember, at this close, somebody in the Congress is going to have a heart attack and die. And somebody else is going to get a $2 million a year job at the railroad inst. And so there's almost never a Russian vote where they're all there. You know, th- this thing is not designed to operate. So we're in for all kinds of drama in the House, which means it's even going to be more dysfunctional. This was a terrific session. I think people really got a sense, I think, of what our fellows are like and what they can offer. Thank you all, and good night. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.